Abraham. And we've now reached the point uh, in Genesis chapter 20, which we just had read to us. What I'd like to do is to look firstly more closely at this chapter, and then secondly to put it in the, within the bigger picture. What is God saying through this? Well, if we look at this chapter, I would suggest that we could call this the story of Abraham and Abimelech, or subtitled Do Not Be Faithless. Let's look more closely. I would suggest there are four things that we can ask ourselves as we come to this chapter. The first is this. What was Abraham's problem? Second, how did he suggest, sorry, how did he solve it? Thirdly, what was his reasoning within himself? And then lastly, what was the root of what is clearly held up to be a failing in this man of faith? This man who's held up by both Jews and Christians as someone who, as it were, played a key role in the beginning of the people of God. Well, his problem, it seems to me, is clear. It's simple. He explains it when he speaks in verse 11 to the king whose land he's, he's living in at that time. I said to myself, there's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. He feared for his life. It was as simple as that. So what was his solution? It was to use what was true, a part of the truth, and hope that in doing that, he will be able to hide from the other part of the truth. So he took this half-truth. His solution was to hide in those half-truths. It is true. Sarah was his um, sister, or half-sister, we might say today. And in saying that he was his sister, and insisting that she then had to say he was his brother, it was true what was being said. However, it actually didn't address the question. She is a married woman, and as such, people respected because marriage is a covenant. And to break a covenant is a serious affair. So he hid the real truth with a part truth. And why did he do that? Simply because he wanted to keep away from trouble. You see it there in verse 12. She really is my sister. She is the daughter. She and and she of my father, though not of my mother. And she did become my wife. So, verse two. Abraham says of his wife to everybody, "She is my sister." Here in this part truth we see Abraham trying to solve a difficulty. And the question I think the, the narrative is posing of us is this. Was that difficulty something which Abraham was called to solve at all? It is easy in the life of faith to pray in the morning as if all depends on God and the rest of the day to to act as if all depends on us. 
Do you recognise that pattern? I know of church, I think I may have mentioned this in public before, I know of church PCCs which pray at the beginning of the meetings, God bless what we're about to decide. They don't put it like that. And we live in the West Midlands. This is the country where, in Birmingham, the place of a thousand toys, we, we're used to solving things. When there's a problem, we sort it. Abraham's failure, it seems to me, was to try and sort things out himself. Now, why was that a problem? Because what Abraham feared was this, that people would think his wife was a very attractive woman, the king would want him, and in order, if they were married, the only way that the king could take him would be to, to kill the husband so she becomes a widow and then she, he can take her. So the problem was, as far as Abraham saw it, he, his life was at risk. But right back at the beginning in Genesis 12, when Abraham came on the scene, Abraham as he was called then, God promised to him, I will give you a nation. You will be the father of a nation. And this nation will be huge in number and will be a means of blessing the world. On the one hand, Abraham had received God's promise. But when it became difficult, he didn't trust that, but rather thought, I'll sort it out myself. How do I do that? I'll pretend. And if my wife, as my sister, does get taken by this man, and it turns out to be in some way or other an abuse of our relationship, so be it. At least my life will be, will be saved. And remember, this is Abraham who's meant to be an example of faith. So, what we've got is a dilemma arises and we turn to our own natural way of trying to solve it and we cut corners or bend things to try and get it right, to find our way through. And that's what Abraham did. And it all went wrong. And what happened was, as we've heard, uh, the, the women stopped conceiving, that the king uh, had this dream and in it God appears to him and says, you know, this is a married woman, don't touch her. And he right quite rightly says, I don't want to. I never would. If I'd ever known, I wouldn't have. Why has he done this? And then calls Abraham into his, into his presence to say, why have you put me in this position? If you wanted to look at this chapter, chapter 20, and you wanted to say to yourself, who's the hero? Who would you say is the hero here? Sorry, that was a real question. I know, I know, I know some people sit there thinking, Go on. Abimelech. That's right. In the dream, when God says that, Abimelech protests his righteousness. When God says to him, this man is a prophet, Abimelech immediately respects him. And actually, as it were, honours him and honours his wife and puts things right. Abimelech, curious enough, is the one from whom we can learn. And Abraham is the one from whom we can learn, but not in the way we'd expect. Well, now, let's look at that in the bigger context. If we then put this into the, the whole saga set out in Genesis, Abraham appears in Genesis 12 and dies in, in, in Genesis 25. So if that period covers his... You can see it there. That covers the whole story. And in Genesis 12, God... The purple means it's, it's God speaking, for those who who can work out colours. 
Sometimes you can always determine. God speaks and gives a promise, and this promise is going to change the world forever. And he promises to this old man, a man of 75, that he's going to be the father of a nation. And he is 75 now. The saga unfolds, and eventually by chapter 20, which is where we are, if you move on to the next, yeah, chapter 20 is the, the last part of the story before 21, because in chapter 21, Isaac is born. So what we've got, we've got Abraham's story from chapter 12 to chapter 20. And it says here, when Isaac was born, Abraham by now is 100 years old. So we've got 25 years of having to trust God's word that they were going to be given both children and then descendants. It, it was a long stretch. Now, let us look more closely in the next slide. I wonder if you spotted this. In Genesis 12, at the very beginning, what does Abraham do? He says, my wife is beautiful. Um, the commentaries suggest she might have been 10 years younger, which I think is a, probably a good age to have your wife younger as an investment for the future. Um, she was clearly beautiful in her 60s. That's really where I was going with that. And so... In Genesis 12, Abraham, when they see you, they'll say, this is my wife, say you're my sister. And he gets into trouble for it there. 25 years later, in Genesis 20, he says, say you are my sister, because they will kill me. Almost word for word. Abraham was not a particularly quick learner. Isn't it amazing how we can repeat the mistakes we thought we'd learn? God is gracious to us. He teaches us things. And then we forget them. I encourage new Christians to write things down. I don't know whether you've heard the idea of journaling, keeping a journal. I keep an occasional journal. By that I mean, every time something significant happens in my spiritual walk with Jesus, I write it up. And then, two weeks and three weeks later, I can't remember what happened. And I go back and I read it. And it's, it's like having your own story to encourage you. The story of how God has blessed you and helped you and the lessons learned. Here, Abraham could well have done with a bit of uh, learning how to keep his own journal, I think. So what can we learn? What we see in Abraham is actually a sequence of compromise, failure, dodging, and punctuated by moments when he, he comes to God and he says, Lord, I'm, I'm yours, and I trust you, I take you to word, and then he's back to the same thing, ducking and diving, weaving, trying to keep going in a world where he clearly wasn't a very powerful person, and the kings in those days were really powerful. So Abraham, the story of Genesis 12 to 20 is actually the story of, of a man called by God, called to take God at his word, who managed it now and again, but actually most of the time didn't, and instead fell back on his own devices. And isn't that actually what quite a few of us wind up doing? I don't know about you, I, when I first became a Christian, it was all just full on. Was it for you? Or something you know, perhaps? 
And when it was full on, it, it, it was Jesus was everywhere. It was lovely. And I used to, I, I was, uh, we had um, a Christian Union in the university I was in, and because I had a car, one of the few people had a car, that was courtesy of the Royal Air Force, because I was in the Air Force Reserve. So the Air Force paid for the car. We, we I couldn't afford a car. So I drove this car around, and I used to go and collect the Christian Union speakers, because I had a car. And do you know, the number of times I lost the car keys just before I was due to go and collect, just astonishing. And I would pray, Lord Jesus, where are the car keys? Oh, thank you, Lord, not for you. Do you know, the, the, the answers to prayer were just simple and quick and easy and completely, um, what's the word, evidential, good, solid answer to prayer. Now I find the Lord says, keep looking, fella. <laughs> Learn. <laughs> there are times in our Christian lives when it is all very immediate and real, and we should give thanks to God and enjoy that and, and, and share that as best we can. And there are other times when actually it does seem that the Lord has stood back and is, is, is looking at us and saying, do you trust me? Let me just see. Go on, then show me. And that's the time when we can slip away. Do you remember that poem, Footsteps? There are, I can't do the words, but the story is that there are, there are footsteps in the sand, two sets of footsteps, where the Christian and Jesus are walking along. And then there's one step of footsteps. And, and people say, and the Christian says, Oh Lord, you've left me. And Jesus says, No. That's when I carried you. You might feel you've been left, but the Lord is there carrying you. Of course, there is another reading of that text. If you want to so sort of deconstruct it, that's when the Lord said, no, that was when we both hopped. <laughs> so we've got Abraham and his very ordinary discipleship, forgetting the good moments, and just overcome by the challenges of the moment. And yet, in parallel to that, what we see is God's faithfulness. Look at this. The same chapters. In chapter 12, God gives the promise. In chapter 13, God repeats the promise. In chapter 14, he repeats the promise. Chapter 15, he repeats the promise. Abraham's all over the place, but God is saying, listen, I have promised, trust me. And in chapter 15, it's almost as if that cumulative revelation from God, I have promised this, take me at my word. The penny drops. And Abraham, it says, chapter 15, verse 6, believed God. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then in 16, we get the story of uh, how then his wife comes along immediately after that and says, actually, we're going nowhere. I am just way past childbearing, but I have got a young woman as a slave take her. And Abraham says, all right, I'll do that. Extraordinary, isn't it? He's just got to that climax moment. In his journal, Genesis 15, 6 would have been a high spot. He would have said, Lord, I'm sorry that I've gone all this way and that. I've come back to you again and I would like to take you at your word and with your help I'll live for you. And then he's back to trying to sort it out himself. How can we sort this? So chapter 17, the promise is repeated. Chapter 18, it's repeated. Uh, 19 is the story of Lot, so that doesn't really apply. And chapter 20, we, we've got the same, uh, Abraham wondering what to do and trying to make, make it up as he goes along. Well, how do we draw that together? How might we, what lessons would you draw from that? Well, I've got a few here, but I'd like to ask you to think about what 
you think God might want to say to you through this particular story. This man of faith with two clay feet. First, I suppose, I would say, do you recognise yourself in him? I do, because I am one who sorts things out. I remember when I was in Uganda, uh, we, uh, I looked after, I was a, a missionary in Uganda teaching New Testament and systematics in the theological college. And, and as well as that, I was a pastor to the missionaries around uh, Uganda. We had 55 missionaries, or mission partners they're called now. And some of them were really dedicated ladies of a slightly elderly disposition um, who would live far out in the villages just alongside people, building relationship and sharing Jesus with them. And they were given, because we, you know Christians, uh, this is missionary work, they were given clapped out old cars to help keep them going. They had some Renault Ford and the De Chevaux, I don't know if somebody remember them. They're very good on rough roads, but they do eventually wear out. And so when I was, the, when I was in the, the, the past of the missionaries, I received a, a, a phone call to say two of our lady missionaries who were in their 60s went out to village, in a village, and this, this Renault 4, if you can remember it, was the one with the funny nose down at the front. They set out in it, they drove down the drive into the village, and then the car settled into the road like a chicken over her chicks. The suspension at the front and the back failed at the same time and it just sat down. And it didn't move again. And I thought, there are lots of ways of meeting people in, in rural Africa. You don't need this. So I wrote a paper for CMS and I said, I don't think this helps the gospel at all. Why don't we provide proper working cars? Because I was an engineer before I was a theologian. Uh, they sort of believed me. So I said, all right, deal. So uh, on the side, as well as teaching New Testament systematics, I was also an importer. So I started to import cars, first in the UK, but then I found you can get better value if you import them straight from Japan. So we imported them straight from Japan. And you know, it's, I've never ever had four brand new cars sitting outside my house ever, before then or since then. But I had because when they came, I had to test them, you understand, you know. And, and these cars, we would um, uh, have to get papers for. And the government knew that, that, that these cars were for church use, and they weren't happy with that. So you'd go to the office and say, uh, here are the papers, and they said, no, he's busy, the man's away. Uh, the trick was to have your, leave your jacket on the chair and for the week, and it meant you were supposed to be in the building working, but you weren't even there. And this went on and on. Sometimes you get paid, it could take six months before they got the, the license plate, so they'd go on the road. And I met this uh, mission partner um, from Kizay, from the revival area, and she came up on Friday. She said, David, uh, I met her in the office, the same office. I said, I've come to get the papers for my car. I said, really? And I'm going back on Monday. I said, you are? <laughs> okay, fine. I wish you well. She said, I'm going to sit here in the office and pray. And I thought, well, I've never tried that. Anyway, and I came back on Monday, and they said again, no, your paper's not ready. And her papers were. And I thought, how did she do that? <laughs> because what she'd done, she said, I cannot do this. The Lord will have to do it. I was busy getting the papers in order, getting duplicate copies, pursuing people, reminding them. I was doing all the stuff that we would do. But I'd forgotten that this was God's work primarily. I'd spent so much time practically sorting it that I hadn't actually listened and prayed. 
And so she got her papers in sort of four days. Just amazing. Now, do you recognize that pattern in yourself? That sometimes we take over and we do what Abraham does and we miss. Well, these are the lessons I thought Abraham has shown me. The first, could it be this? Do not put myself first and my thinking. Do not hide in words which avoid risk. And don't try to do God's work in my way. That's what I came away with. The first and the last are pretty obvious. That the, but the one, the hiding in words. Do you know the number of people today who I think do this, even without realising it? Has anybody said to you, if somebody's ill in your family, I'll be thinking of you? Have they said that to you? What do they really mean? I'll be praying for you. But why don't they say that? Because we've been socialised into making our faith innocuous and bland and neutral and pretty boring, really. I work with people who are, at the moment, who are exploring God calling for ordination. And they say, I've got a calling. And I say to them, have you? They say, I think so. I say, well, let's explore that. And then I say, tell me a bit more about it. Well, I feel this and I feel that. I said, do you realise, so far, you've said nothing. You haven't mentioned God or Jesus. You've just talked about yourself. They go, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. What I meant was God was calling me. I know that's what you meant, I said. But do you realise how you've said it? You've moved God out of the picture and you've said it in a way which is acceptable to people who are not Christians, in case maybe they'll make fun of you or you might go out on a limb or something. My challenge, I think, for many Christians today is, are you explicitly a follower of Jesus or not? Do you mention Jesus in your conversation with your neighbours or your friends? Or do you say, you go to church, don't you? Yes, you say, and that's the end of the story. That's the most innocuous thing you can say, I go to church. There's more risk playing golf, isn't there? I mean, come on. Do we mention Jesus? Are we out front, up front, sorry, up front, and, and completely transparent about it? And maybe that's what we can learn. The obverse of Abraham's life is this. Maybe we can learn to put the Lord first again. Maybe we can just be transparent about the Lord. Your way, not mine, O Lord. The words of that old hymn. In the revival times in, in Uganda, they had a picture of a heart with a chair on it. And that chair was the throne, the centre of a person's life. And they used to say, as they met each other daily on the road, they'd say, who's on the throne today? Is it Jesus or is it you? Well, I think Abraham, as many of the characters in the Old Testament, are there to teach us, not by, not asking us to follow their examples necessarily, but to learn from their mistakes. Now, the great thing about that is, I hope that's sort of made you sobered up a little bit, have a little think, but the great thing is that the real word in the middle of this whole narrative, Genesis 12 to 20, is this. And if we come to it here at the end. Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him as righteous in Genesis 15, 6. And that's picked up in the New Testament in James, that said. Abraham believed God and he was called God's friend. Can you imagine having a friend like Abraham? And God says, you are my friend. You. And, ah, oh, but I'm not good enough, Lord. And he says, I know. And you're my friend. But I've let you down. I know you're my friend. I, I, really, when I look in the mirror, 
you don't mean me. I do. When I do children's talks, I sometimes get them to, uh, to act it out. I say this. Will you just do me a favor? You don't have to do this now. Sorry, I'm just illustrating your point. Would you just do me a favor, I say to the children. Would you look at someone on your left? And they all go left or something like that. They go left. I said, now look at the person on your right. They go, yes. Yes. I say, now Jesus says, I love the people and who, the person who's between, the person on your left and on your right. They go, the person on the left. Ooh, That's what Jesus does. He loves you as you are. It doesn't mean you want to stay like that. Quite the reverse. He's definitely keen you don't. But actually, he begins by saying, in your bumbling efforts to be a Christian, you're my friend. And that's the most important part, I think, of the Abraham story. That even someone like that, God says, you're my friend. Do you know, in, in today's language, that's pretty banal. It's pretty ordinary. We sing hymns about Jesus being our friend. But actually, in those days, when these were written, nobody said they were God's friend. It was far too high a privilege. Even the kings, even the prophets, the priests were never, ever described as God's friend. It was so rare, because you never could have that intimacy with the God who's high and lifted up, and yet also wants to be intimate with us. And it was Jesus who explained that that is possible. He said to the disciples, do you know, you're my friend. Us? Yes, he said. You. Let us pray. In a moment's pause, if something has come to mind, would you like to turn that into your own private prayer to the Lord? Lord Jesus, thank you that we see in the story of Abraham a fallible person like ourselves and a God who is faithful. Lord, we admit that often we don't think that we are your friends. So I pray, Holy Spirit, will you speak to us again? Will you chase away those words which condemn us, those words which belittle us, those words which criticize us, those words which judge us? And may the words of Jesus come again afresh this morning. You are my friend. Yes, you are my friend. Lord Jesus, thank you. And together we offer you our thanks in your name. Amen. And I'll